0: Section twenty of Old and New Masters by Robert Lynd. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Old and New Masters by Robert Lynd, Chapter fourteen, The Prince of French Poets. It is difficult nowadays to conceive that, within half a century of his death, Ronsard's fame suffered so dark an eclipse that no new edition of his works was called for between 1629 and 1857. When he died he was, as Monsieur Jurasson reminds us, the most illustrious man of letters in Europe. He seemed, too, to have all those gifts of charm— charm of mood and music, which make immortality certain. And yet, in the rule of thumb ages that were to follow, he sank into such disesteem in his own country, that Boileau had not a good word for him, and Voltaire roundly said of him that he spoiled the language. Later, we have Arnaud asserting that France had only done herself dishonor by her enthusiasm for the wretched poetry of ronsard VENILON, as monsieur juraissant tells us discusses ronsard as a linguist and ignores him as a poet it was the romantic revival of the 19th century that placed ronsard on a throne again even today however there are pessimistic frenchmen who doubt whether their country has ever produced a great poet Mr. Bennet has told us of one who, on being asked who was the greatest of French poets, replied, Victor Hugo, alas! And in the days when Hugo was still but a youth, the doubt must have been still more painful. So keenly was the want of a national poet felt that, if one could not have been discovered, the French would have had to invent him. It was necessary for the enthusiastic young romanticists to possess a great indigenous figure to stand beside those imported idols—Shakespeare, Byron, Goethe, and Dante. Sainte-Beuve, who brought out a Ronsard anthology with a critical essay in 1828, showed them where to look. After that it was as though French literature had begun with Ronsard. He was the ideal ancestor. He was, as it were, a rediscovered fatherland. But his praise since then has been no mere task of patriotism. It has been a deep enthusiasm for literature. You cannot imagine, wrote Flaubert in 1852, what a poet Ronsard is. What a poet! What a poet! What wings! This morning, at half-past twelve, I read a poem aloud which almost upset my nerves. It gave me so much pleasure. That may be taken as the characteristic French view of Ronsard. It may be an exaggerated view. It may be fading, to some extent, before modern influences. But it is unlikely that Ronsard's reputation in his own country will ever again be other than that of a great poet. At the same time it is not easy, on literary grounds, to acquiesce in all the praises that have been heaped upon him. One would imagine, from Flaubert's exclamations, that Ronsard had arranged like Shelley's, whereas, in fact, he was more comparable with the English cavalier-poets. He had the cavalier-poet's gift of making love seem a profession rather than a passion. He was always very much a gentleman— both in his moods and in his philosophy. A great deal of his best poetry is merely a variation on carpe diem. On the other hand, though he never went very deep or very high, he did express real sentiments and emotions in poetry. Few poets have sung the regret for youth more sincerely and more beautifully, and with Ronsard, regret for the lost wonder of his own youth was perhaps the acutest emotion he ever knew. He was himself in his early years one of those glorious youths who have the genius of charm and comeliness, of grace and strength and the arts. He excelled at football as in lute-playing. He danced, fenced, and rode better than the best and with his noble countenance, his strong limbs, his fair beard, and his eyes full of gentle gravity, he must have been the picture of the perfect courtier and soldier. Above all, we are told, his conversation was delightful. He had the gift of pleasing. When he went to Scotland in 1537 with Madeleine, the king's daughter, to attend as page her tragic marriage with James V., JAMES WAS SO ATTRACTED BY HIM THAT HE DID NOT ALLOW HIM TO LEAVE THE COUNTRY FOR TWO YEARS. WITH EVERY GIFT OF POPULARITY AND SUCCESS, WITH THE WORLD APPARENTLY ALREADY AT HIS FEET, RONSARD WAS SUDDENLY STRUCK DOWN BY AN ILLNESS THAT CRIPPLED HIS WHOLE LIFE. HE BECAME DEAF, OR HALF-DEAF. HIS BODY WAS TORTURED WITH ARTHRITIS AND recurrent ATTACKS OF GOUT his career as a courtier lay in ruins before him. Possibly, had it not been so, his genius as a poet would have spent itself in mere politeness. The loss of his physical splendor and the death of more than one of his companions, however, filled him with an extreme sense of the transitoriness of the beauty of the world, of youth and fame and flowers, and turned him both to serious Epicureanism and to serious writing. By the year fifteen fifty he was leading the young men of France in a great literary renaissance, a reaction against the lifeless jingles of ballads and punning rhymes. Like du bellay, he asked himself and his contemporaries, Are we then less than the Greeks and romans? and he set out to lay the foundations in France of a literature as individual in its genius as the ancient classics. M. Reson, in a most interesting chapter, relates the history of the battles over form and language which were fought by French men of letters in the days of La Pléiade. In an age of awakenings, of conquests, of philosophies, of discussions on everything under the sun, the literature of tricksters was ultimately bound to give way before the bold originality and the sincerities of the new school. But Ronsard had to endure a whole parliament of mockery before the day of victory of his life apart from his work in literature there is little to tell for a man who lived in france in the days when protestantism and catholicism were murderously at one another's throats he had a peculiarly uneventful career this too though he threw himself earnestly into the battles against the heretics He had begun by sympathizing with Protestantism, because it promised much-needed reforms in the Church, but the sympathy was short-lived. In 1553, though a layman, he was himself filling various ecclesiastical offices. He drew the salaries of several priories during his life, more lowly paid priests apparently doing the work. Though earnestly a Catholic, however, Ronsard, was nevertheless faithful to friends who took the other side. He published his kindly feelings toward Audet de Coligny, the admiral's cardinal brother, for instance, who had adopted Protestantism, and married, and, though he could write bloodily enough against his sectarian enemies, the cry for tolerance, for pity, for peace, seems continually to force itself to his lips amid the wars of the time. M. Gerson lays great stress on the plain-spokenness of Ronsard. He praises especially the courage with which the poet often spoke out his mind to kings and churchmen, though no man could write odes fuller of exaggerated adulation when they were wanted. He sometimes counselled kings, we are told, in a tone that, after all our revolutions, no writer would dare to employ to-day. Perhaps m Joresson overestimates the boldness with which his hero could remind kings that they like common mortals were made of mud he has done so, I imagine, largely in order to clear him from the charge of being a flatterer. It is interesting to be reminded by the way that one of his essays in flattery was an edition of his works dedicated by the order of catherine de medici to elizabeth of England, whom he compared to all the incomparables, adding a eulogy of my lord Robert Dudley, comte de l'Ancestre, as the ornament of the English, the wonder of the world. Elizabeth was delighted, and gave the poet a diamond for his pretty book. But Ronsard does not live in literature mainly as a flatterer, nor is he remembered as a keeper of the conscience of princes, or as a religious controversialist. If nothing but his love-poems had survived, we should have almost all his work that is of literary importance. He fell in love in the grand manner three times, and from these three passions most of his good poetry flowed. First there was Cassandre, a beautiful girl of Florentine extraction, whom he saw singing to her lute when he was only twenty-two. And loved to distraction. She married another and became the star of Ronsard's song. She was the eruptive heroine of that witty and delightful sonnet on the Iliad. Je voulis en trois jours l'Iliade d'Omer, et pour ce corridor, ferme bien lui sur moi. Si rien me vient troubler, j'assure ma foi, tu sentiras combien est ma colère je ne veux seulement que notre chambrière vienne vers mon lit ton compagnon ni toi je veux trois jours entiers demeurer à Récois pour vous après une semaine entière mais si quelqu'un venait de la part de cassandre ouvre-lui tôt la porte et ne le fais attendre soudain entre en ma chambre et me vient accoudrer je veux seulement à lui seul me montrer au reste si un dieu voulait pour moi descendre du ciel ferme la porte et ne le laisse entrer nine years after cassandre came marie the fifteen year old daughter of an Angevart villager nut-brown, smiling, and with the cheeks the colour of a May rose. She died young, but not before she had made Fronsard suffer by coquetting with another lover. What is more important still, not before she had inspired him to write that sonnet which has about it so much of the charm of the morning. Mignonne, l'avez-vous, vous êtes parasseuse. J'ai à aussi à la Fredonnais et j'a le doucement jargonné déçu l'épinacis sa complainte amoureuse sus debout allons voir leurs palettes perleuses et votre beau rosier de boutons couronnés et vos oeillers aimés auxquels vous aviez donné hier soir de l'eau d'une main si soigneuse arsoir en vous couchant vous vos yeux d'être plus tôt que moi ce matin évié mais le dormir de l'aube aux oh filles gracieuses vous tient d'ensoumer encore les yeux siers ça ça que je les baise et votre beauté teint sans foi pour vous apprendre à vous lever matin On was old and gray at least he was old before his time and gray when he met hélène de Sorgere, made of honour to the Queen, and began the third of his grand passions. He lived all the life of a young lover over again. They went to dances together, Hélène in a mask. Hélène gave her poet a crown of myrtle and laurel. They had childish quarrels and swore eternal fidelity. It was for her that Ronsard made the most exquisite of his sonnets. Quand vous serez bien vie a sonnet of which Mr. Yeats has written a magical version in English. It is in referring to the sonnets for Hélène that M. Joreson calls attention to the realism of Ronsard's poetry. He points out that one seems to see the women Ronsard loves far more clearly than the heroines of many other poets, He notes the same genius of realism again when he is relating how Ronsard, on the eve of his death, as he was transported from priory to priory in hope of relief at each new place, wrote a poem of farewell to his friends, in which he described the skeleton horrors of his state with a careful minuteness. Ronsard indeed showed himself a very personal chronicler throughout his work, He cannot hide the fact that he likes to sleep on the left side, that he hates cats, dislikes servants with slow hands, believes in omens, adores physical exercises and gardening, and prefers, especially in summer, vegetables to meat. Monsieur Joresson, I may add, has written the just and scholarly praise of a most winning poet. His book... Which appears in the Grand écrivain français series is not only a good biographical study but an admirable narrative of literary and national history. End of section twenty.